it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And if you can't listen live, which we always recommend and prefer, well, there's a podcast that is free of charge on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home, all the ways to listen as we air or to get that free podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. You've got options. Programming note, I'll be on special report tonight on the panel. That's with Brett Baer and the whole crew. Probably around 6.40 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. So hope to see you there. You can set your DVR or tune in live. Here on the radio, this is what we've got for you in store. Coming up later this hour, our friend Kennedy from Fox Business. She's going to be here, and I'll be returning the favor later in the week. In fact, I'm heading up to New York after the show today. I'm doing the show from D.C. as usual, and I'll be in New York doing the show Tuesday through Friday. And then next week, a few days from a remote location that we'll be telling you more about later in the program. We're excited about it. But Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week, it'll be Fox News World Headquarters in New York. And I'll be doing Gutfeld show tomorrow on FNC and then filling in for Kennedy on her show Wednesday and Thursday on FBN. I'm looking forward to that radio segment here coming up this hour. In the next hour here, we've got Alexander Gray. He was the former chief of staff of the National Security Council under President Trump. We'll get his thoughts on Ukraine. We will also talk Ukraine in our final hour with Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, who will once again be joining us a bit later on. And I do want to begin today on international events but actually not in Ukraine. As I indicated, we will get there. There is news out of that conflict. It is the overwhelming story globally, at least on this front within this category, and I think it deserves to be. But a story that I think is actually getting underplayed is what's happening in China right now with these COVID lockdowns. We've mentioned it a few times here or there, we've played a soundbite of people just wailing and sobbing and screaming out their windows in Shanghai. Just a massive, sprawling city in northern China. More people live in Shanghai than live in Florida. I've given you that little tidbit before. It just gives you a sense of just the scale. What a massive, massive place Shanghai is. And it's been in lockdown for weeks And it's not the only city. I know a lot of the attention, to the extent that there has been attention, has been focused on Shanghai, which makes sense. It's sort of a large cosmopolitan city. It's an economic engine. It has a very high profile globally. But there are dozens of other cities currently in various forms of lockdowns. 
as the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, is trying to pursue a totally crazy zero-COVID policy, which was not really doable even in the early days, but with this hyper-transmissible variant now floating around, it just has no chance of working, and it's not working. And we talked about it just for a little bit last week with Dr. Marty McCary when he joined me in studio, and he said it's a bad combination right now in China because you have weak, poor-performing Chinese vaccines. You have millions of seniors in China who have not been vaccinated. And you have comparatively very low natural immunity among the Chinese population. So that is a recipe for disaster, which is why they're freaking out the Chinese government and they're doing what they do, which is like full-blown, hardcore authoritarianism, which isn't working. The only thing we can hope and pray for the people of China, because I will criticize the Chinese Communist Party every day for the rest of my life if I need to. It is an evil government. But the Chinese people are living under that oppression. And I have no ill will toward everyday, ordinary Chinese. And you don't want to see mass suffering and deaths. So the hope is, the prayer is, that this variant is so mild that the damage is limited. That's the hope. What we do know for sure is that they are absolutely lying about what's happening. And that should not come as a surprise to any of us, because what has the Chinese government done about COVID every single step of the way? They have lied through their teeth. Starting at the very beginning, they told meaningful lies shortly after the discovery of this virus. And those lies had international consequence. This virus started in their country. There is a good chance it leaked and escaped from one of their bio labs in Wuhan. I know for a long time, even uttering that sentence was considered misinformation. That could get you banned or deplatformed or scolded or suspended various places. Now it's just sort of the conventional wisdom that there's a decent chance that that hypothesis is true. I guess at some point they just decided it went from misinformation to maybe true. And there are some experts who believe it is not just plausible, but probable. And the fact that the Chinese government, the CCP, has done everything in its power to cover up what happened, to thwart investigations, to obstruct the international community and their ability to actually, for example, get in and look at meaningful evidence. They just went in and just sort of wiped the whole place clean, blamed it on a wet market, and hoped everyone would move on. And the World Health Organization probe was broadly seen as a joke and a whitewash. 60 Minutes, we talked about it many months ago, 60 Minutes sort of blew the cover off what a farce that so-called investigation was. They were throwing whistleblowers in prison, disappearing critics internally, welding apartment buildings shut as part of their initial lockdowns. 
They were lying about human-to-human transmission in the early days. They were aided and abetted by the WHO to some extent in those early days as well. And then while they were out there sending faulty PPE and weak vaccines around, they were also claiming laughably, although it's far too serious to be laughable, but you understand my point. They claimed that they just stopped having deaths from COVID. That was their official party line. And they have stuck to that party line even now. The Chinese government says that in Shanghai, this massive city, there have been zero deaths caused by COVID since 2020. So it's been at least what, a year and a half of no deaths in all of Shanghai due to COVID? Are you kidding? I mean, obviously, I don't even understand what the point of that lie is. In some respects, I guess we're fortunate that the communist liars are so bad at their lying that they pick entirely implausible things to try to sell to the point that no one's going to ever buy it. Like if they had just said, oh, yeah, we've been sort of just bumping along here, a death or two here. We had six this one month, and they were just making up numbers and shutting down the truth, but making it just a little tiny bit more believable. Maybe more folks out there would say, you know, perhaps they did get this right. Instead, they decide to go full propaganda and say, oh, yeah, zero. The number of deaths is zero. Except here's a story from over the weekend, BBC. Dozens of elderly patients at a hospital in Shanghai have died after contracting COVID-19, but official government figures claim no deaths in the city have been caused by the disease since 2020. The BBC has spoken to a hospital manager and had access to correspondence sent to relatives of patients who died during the Omicron outbreak that is sweeping through China's biggest city. The BBC has also had access to official documents that suggest at least 27 patients from this single hospital have died from what they're now calling underlying health problems. So we've actually had this debate in this country on this show about people who get sick or are hospitalized, let's say, with COVID versus from COVID. And I think that's an important distinction, and we've had that discussion. Why? If someone shows up at a hospital because they broke their leg and then they have to get tested as a mandatory like matter of course, that's what you have to do to get admitted to the hospital, and then it happens to come back positive even though you were asymptomatic, that is not really a COVID hospitalization. And it seems like the public health establishment and the Biden administration has finally moved in that direction now that it suits their political interests to bring those numbers down because, you know, all the – COVID restrictions were no longer tenable politically. Same thing with deaths, right? If you have an illness that is severely driven by COVID and then you die, that's a COVID death. If you're in a car accident and posthumously you test positive for COVID in your system, that's not a COVID death. And I think it's important for us to have that discussion and draw those distinctions. You might say it's, you know, parsing 
You might say it's rhetorical hair splitting. I don't think so. I think it is actually trying to get a better handle on how serious COVID is, get an accurate death toll, et cetera. But what they've done in China is taken it to absurd levels saying there are no deaths from COVID. It's only deaths with COVID. That's how they've reached their hilarious and ridiculous zero COVID deaths fake number. BBC, in this same story, obtained a letter that was sent to relatives of patients who had died. And in the letter, management at the hospital apologized, admitting, quote, a lack of professionalism, also expressing deepest guilt. The medical professionals know. They also know that if they blow the whistle too loudly, they could be, you know, off to the gulag somewhere, imprisoned, stripped of their careers. But they see what's happening. Official figures say there have been no deaths during the current outbreak across the city, none at all. So the regime that has been lying, lying, lying about COVID from the very beginning is still lying. Telling insulting lies that with millions of people in lockdown and cases rising every day, and I'm sure the cases and those numbers are also false, they have these quarantine centers that look like something out of a horror movie. BBC's found one hospital with 27 dead. They're saying, nope, never mind all of that. It's not real. No deaths. I know there are some people who say it's racist and dangerous and xenophobic and sinophobic. Terribly problematic to criticize the regime in China. The Chinese regime deserves criticism. It is vital to tell the truth when they lie. It is essential to call out what they're doing. And these woke notions of problematic racism are dangerous nonsense. It wasn't true when they were blaming Donald Trump for mentioning China in the context of the virus. It's not true when they attack some Democrats for talking tough on China. It is a silencing technique. Don't blame Chinese people. Don't blame Asian people. Blame the Chinese Communist Party. They've done nothing but lie. And the lies continue, obviously. It's not subtle. When we come back, a few reports from on the ground in Shanghai. I'm telling you, you are not hearing all that much about this. It is shocking what's happening in this huge city. The details in the Wall Street Journal and Forbes, I'll just give you a taste of what people like. These are the elites in China, what a lot of them are going through under this authoritarian regime where they're trying to cling to zero COVID and starving their people in the process. Although starving people is sort of how the Chinese Communist Party got its start. What, 30, 40 million starved to death under Mao? This is a different scenario, but a lot of people suffering. Some of those details are next on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Let me read to you from this Wall Street Journal story that I sort of previewed in the previous segment. They interviewed... 
dozens of Shanghai residents. And by the way, the reporters are also struggling there. There are journalists struggling. There are people who work at American companies. There's an NYU campus over there. There's not a lot of food to go around at all. They're getting these little tiny deliveries of food like every four or five days in some cases. So the journal reports, quote, discontent is deepening across Shanghai, China's largest and wealthiest city. Now several weeks into a rigid lockdown aimed at crushing a COVID outbreak that is straining the nerves and affecting the livelihoods of its 25 million residents and eroding the public's trust in authorities. The CCP is doing this to itself. The effects that have played out in recent weeks, food shortages, lack of access to medical care, overcrowded quarantine centers, and infants separated from their parents. Imagine that. They're also killing pets, by the way. It's like, oh, your uh, your owner's gone into quarantine. We're going to liquidate your your cat or your dog. It's just, it's evil. These have frayed nerves across a city that has long prided itself as a pragmatic financial hub at the forefront of China's decades-long shift to a market economy. They quote one person, 36-year-old male, I've lost confidence in this government. He says he's been confined in his home for more than a month, unable to feed his family of four on the government-supplied rations of vegetables and milk. He's managed to order some groceries online, but the soaring prices and scarce supplies risk draining his savings completely as these lockdowns drag on. Some of the elites in Shanghai are considering leaving the country. Quote, more elites will start reevaluating their relationship with the city and this country, says a 34-year-old woman. By the way, 87 cities out of the top 100 in terms of population in China have imposed restrictions on movement and activities. 87 out of 100. This is what, hundreds of millions of people? Forbes has an article about this as well, just about the total breakdown in confidence, people furious at the government, people leaping to their deaths from high rises due to the lockdown and starvation, crying out of their windows, we're hungry, people being beaten by authorities. I mean, dystopia barely covers it. That's what's happening right now in China. And it's an approach that just cannot and will not work against this type of variant. Someone noted back in 2021, the New York Times had a story about how China beat the virus. Oops. Maybe don't fall for Chinese propaganda. Just a thought. We'll be right back with Kennedy next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show, a brand new broadcast week, and we're happy to have you on board chugging along together. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. And with us now, 
is Kennedy, host of Kennedy on Fox Business Network, Monday through Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern. I'll be filling in for her Wednesday and Thursday of this week on FBN. Looking forward to that. You can follow her on Twitter at Kennedy Nation. And Kennedy, welcome back to the program. Guy Benson, what is happening in Guy Bensonia? Well, I mean, we will hopefully have a chance to catch up up in New York before you leave town. So we will have those conversations off air. I do believe that there are birthday parties to plan and all sorts of wonderful things uh, for us to discuss. What I was hoping we might do together here on the air is engage in a segment together that we do regularly here on the show. I'm not sure if you've ever had the pleasure of being part of a segment that we call, we even have a jingle, we call it Woke Tales. All right, so in Woke Tales. Oh, that's so cute. Where's Scrooge well, McDuck and his money? That's exactly right. That's actually one of my favorite scenes from the opening credits of DuckTales when he, like, jumps into all the coins, all the gold coins, like it's a With swimming pool, obviously. That's yeah. not how science works. He'd be in real trouble. Uh, he might hurt his back, in fact, <laughs> as, as I learned. Um, even falling on water can be very painful. Uh, but setting that aside... We took the DuckTales jingle. We made it Woke Tales, and we just follow woke excesses. And sometimes we take the topics more seriously, sometimes less seriously. And this is probably more in the less serious direction that we're hoping for. Uh, So if you're willing to play along, let's do it. Wonderful. Okay. We're going to start with this one. A women's prison in New Jersey is the source of a lot of controversy in the last— few days because now I believe two separate female inmates have been impregnated by a transgender female identifying inmate. So there was a lawsuit in New Jersey. There's one major women's prison in the state. There was a woman or an individual who identified as a woman who won a lawsuit against the state being forced to serve time in a men's prison. So now the state allows inmates to pick which gender they identify as. You have uh, several dozen transgender women in the women's prison, and one of them apparently clearly has not gone through uh, the, the full transitioning process because this person is impregnating the ladies at the lady prison. And I just wonder what you make of this. A baby. <laughs> I mean, yes. But is it fair to the baby now? Because you're going to have two incarcerated parents where you really shouldn't have i'm fine aren't i (laughs) you're you're the uh you're the offspring of of this this is how you came into being yep and that's how they got little me um yeah that's that's what happens i'm not a biologist guy uh but i know when um biologically male gametes and biologically female gametes intersect, uh, they, they make a baby. So that's, that's what happens. And yes, you, and we can, have... you can have all the, the rhetorical designations you want, but it's actually, it's, it's pretty simple. And this is actually following the science. There's a few buns in the oven now in this prison. And I'm just wondering, you know, might there yeah, that, need to that's be... What so I don't know. Uh, none of this is a surprise. And, you know, it's like, 
I, is it fair to the child? There are a lot of things that aren't fair to kids. And no matter what happens with uh, the child, they'll still find ways to blame their parents for something. I think that is true, and I wish the children fulfilling happy, long lives when they're born. I'm just wondering, might there need to be the future. some rules, some, some rules here, like if you have certain parts that are still actively working parts that maybe you should not be able to sleep with ladies at the lady prison? I don't know. I, I don't really, I mean, it's a little complicated here. Uh, that that seems no, like something that someone may have thought of. It's not complicated you know. at all. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, <laughs> like, a goes into B and then C. Right. It's like back to whenever. When did you start learning this stuff? Like late elementary school maybe? Fifth grade? The very yeah, basics, I, I think? I have, I have two older brothers, and, uh, yeah, I blame them for a lot, including, you know, it's like <laughs> robbing me of the joy of, of feminine Innocence. childhood. Right, and without knowing stuff too young, but so so you knew you knew all these details uh, apparently at a very tender no, age. No, I, I, I had I had all the details wrong. Like that's what happens is you get a bunch <laughs> of misinformation, and then you're like, yeah, I know what a condom is. It's a hat, and it's like, well, I mean, maybe, but not really. Yeah, I remember a friend told me in like fourth grade. That he knew because his dad told him that a condom was like briefs, like tidy whities That was a condom. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. I like, wow. Well, I mean, in a way it is. So it, it take really that is to the bank. It is, uh, <laughs> it's not attractive. So. Next story here, and this comes to us from not New Jersey but Arizona. There were some woke diversity activists who decided – because they go around apparently looking for things to be offended by – And so they determined that there was a DJ that had been hired for an event for some, like, parent-teacher organization or something to DJ an event. And they accused this DJ of wearing blackface. And so they went on the warpath, and they were very angry about the blackface incident. And then it uh, was simply pointed out to these uh, woke diversity activists that the DJ is black. (laughs) And he was, in fact, wearing his own face. So yeah, in he was. that regard, they, they so were technically true. Correct. Yes. And, and so what I find interesting about this story is one of the woke activists was a white woman, and the other woke activist who made a stink in all these allegations about it was uh, is a man of color. I believe he's black. Mm-hmm. And the white woman, when she got called out on this, it was just like, yo, this is just a black man who happens to be a DJ. He's not wearing blackface. It's just face. Uh, she immediately went into full-blown apology mode, backtracking, very, very sorry, groveling. The other guy was, like, doubling down. He, he had these theories. He's like, well, maybe it was just the lighting on the patio in this photo, but I think he may have darkened his skin further. He was accusing the black guy of wearing darker blackface. That's his mm-hmm. new theory of the case. And I just, like, I wonder at what point do people – Stop caring about folks like well, this. Well, what and their happens harassment. is that guy, that guy gets a job in the Biden communications department. <laughs> right, right. That's his next. Because it's like, move. oh yeah, no, we love it. You're still going with this. Oh, perfect. Yes. Where do we sign you up? You can take Jen Psaki's old job. That there is an opening coming, from what we understand. Oh, is there ever? Oof. 
She'll be over at uh, one of our competitors soon enough. And, I mean, that's what she is right now. She's an MSNBC star-in-waiting and part-time White House press secretary. That's like the current gig. And I guess she's leaving sometime this spring, and then she'll be a full-time MSNBC person, and they'll have to be – I mean, and I, my guess is the Biden people probably would like to make a splash with a person of color in that position. So who better than a person of color accusing other people of color for coloring their faces darker than – they actually are. That's you might be onto yes, something. And instead of admitting faults, just continuing to double and triple and quadruple down. Yeah, and that's I think what a good flack generally does, right? You just you never surrender, you never admit you were wrong. Uh, you know, you get increasingly self righteous and snarky. I think that's sort of the way this job is meant to be done these days. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. We'll be monitoring that story, Kennedy. Here's another one. This goes back to rhetorical games on pronouns. And, and the position that I have taken is I generally try to just like golden rule the thing, which is if someone wants to be called their preferred pronouns, I will do my best to abide by that. Right. I think that that's sort of an, a nice, polite, fair thing to do. Uh, I do get a little bit. It, it's tricky for me when they want to be they or them. Because it's hard to talk like it's hard for my brain to filter that, to talk in a plural way about a single person. I will try. I don't screw it up on purpose. But generally, I just try to, you know, go with what the person would like. There was a professor, I believe, at Shawnee State who refused to go along with this. And there were students who complained. And the school then punished this professor who in turn said, no, this is my First Amendment right. I have free speech rights. I have free religion rights. My religious objections to trans stuff uh, will not permit me to call what I believe a male student to be female or what have you. So this professor... No, no, I I wouldn't want him to be my professor either. That's someone who's going to give you a bad grade. I, I, I tend to agree. I think that, you know, that is not the way I would go about doing it. However, the school punished him There was then a lawsuit, and he has now been awarded $400,000 because the school apparently violated his rights. And this reminds me of another story at Oberlin in Ohio recently where the school participated in a totally insane woke smear mob against a local business. And the local business sued and won a huge judgment, millions, tens of millions of dollars against the university for going along with the woke mob that was falsely, you know, alleging racism i guess the question is beside these specific examples here whether it's the pronoun controversy or the thing that happened uh, you know on the on the racial subject in ohio is it and, and i hate the litigious route i wish we were less litigious of a society but i wonder is the way to sort of put some fear into colleges and universities so they won't just automatically just, you know, shrink and prostrate themselves before the mob and just do whatever these people demand is filing lawsuits and winning financial judgments, maybe one of the only ways to get through to them. Uh, I agree. I I don't like people uh, doing each other willy nilly. And I think the financial route is um, going through the alumni and, you know, people who donate um, the thousands and millions of dollars to alumni associations, uh, 
maybe they have to be rallied. So you don't have people who are filing suit here and there because you never really get a precedent because you have one judge that rules one way and another goes another and you never really make sense of anything. But if, if obviously student loan forgiveness, as long as Democrats are in power is on the horizon, it's very viable. And it would be very bad news for low income earners who uh, for whatever reason, including personal choice did not get college degrees. They're going to be on the hook paying for, wealthy people who did go and get college degrees, and that's unfair. So there's not going to be that financial incentive, but, you know, they love their endowments. They love their free money from uh, alumni. So, you know, stop donating if your school is full of garbage. Yeah, maybe that's it. Like between some of these lawsuits and these, you know, these judgments that get handed down by judges or juries and then concerned alumni saying, well, you know, two can play at this game if there's going to be pressure, hardcore pressure campaigns from the left – we just want neutrality. We're going to, you know, start playing with purse strings here. That might get some of these administrators' attention, perhaps. That's that's maybe the optimistic view of this. But we are up on a break here, Kennedy. And this has been Woke Tales. Let's play the jingle. Woke Tales. And we do appreciate you walking us through, among other things, basic biology. I'm not a biologist, guy. Still not a biologist. <laughs> right, it's true. Maybe, well, you can go back to school. Just don't take out a loan. Or if you do, you can repay it. That's what you would do. Kennedy, host somebody. of... Send me back to school. Host of Kennedy on Fox Business tonight, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern. I'll be up there in her stead Wednesday and Thursday, and perhaps we'll even get a chance to see each other up in New York soon. Kennedy, always a pleasure. Thank you. I heart you, guys. And I heart you back. And it's the Guy Benson Show. We heart all of you. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on the Guy Benson Show and a quick Fox News alert to bring you. A federal judge in Florida has struck down the Biden administration's mandate on masks on public transportation, including airplanes. So at least for the moment, that overreach, that ongoing overreach that was recently extended has been struck down by a judge, but expect this to be appealed. So maybe hold off on the celebrations because I'm not sure how long this is going to last. I still think it's a crazy policy. That is totally contradicted by what they're doing down at the border, for example. We talked about that last week. But this is what one judge has done in Florida. It'd be great if it sticks. Meanwhile, we didn't get to this story with Kennedy in the last segment because we were doing some woke tale stuff. Someone sent me this from Politico. And this is an example of sort of left-on-left bickering where we can just sit back and observe There's a law clinic, the purpose of which it exists entirely to try to, I guess, argue through the courts that nature itself has legal rights. So like trees and rivers have legal rights. But this left-wing, like very extreme environmentalist legal clinic 
is now having a huge internal crack up over transphobia allegations. Here's what the Politico story says. Accusations of transphobia are roiling a law clinic that spearheads campaigns to establish legal rights for lakes and rivers. Since last summer, seven of the 15 staffers or contract attorneys have left the firm, which has gained some renown in recent years as a leader in the rights of nature movement. Three of those who quit say the organization was divided by a toxic work culture that resisted efforts to make it more inclusive, including for LGBTQ people. And I guess the hang-up here was specifically involving T. Now, they're denying that there was any culture of transphobia at this group, and they put out a statement calling the story false and unfounded, but there are people on the record talking about what happened. And it seems that some of this has roots in something called deep green resistance. Again, these are all just like Looney Tune people out there fighting each other over pronouns and trans stuff that has nothing to do with their mission. But this entity called deep green resistance is a self-described radical feminist group, which advocates an end to industrial civilization itself. And opposes rights for transgender people because they are radical feminists. And there are some big clashes between hardcore feminists and the trans community. So this resulted in a crack up. And one of the women involved, I believe she's a biological woman, says that she doesn't believe that transgender people exist because gender itself is a social construct. And on and on it goes. And I sit back and I say to myself, let them fight. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour is underway here on The Guy Benson Show. It's our middle hour between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Welcome in. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free of charge on demand every day. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett and friends. That's probably right around 6.40 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. We will see you there. Fox News Alert. The Dow closing the day in the red, down 39 points, finishing at 34,411. Joining us now is Alex Gray, chief of staff to the National Security Council under President Trump, so in the previous administration, and now running for U.S. Senate in Oklahoma. And Alex, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Guy. I appreciate it. You bet. I want to start with this. President Zelensky of Ukraine was on CNN this week, and he was asked about whether or not he would like to see President Biden visit Ukraine. Of course, a number of European leaders have done so. Recently, it was the U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson walking the streets of Kiev with Zelensky. We've talked about the idea of Biden perhaps going over there. It seems like the White House is discussing a lower-level U.S. official. But here's what Zelensky said in cut two. It, it's his decision. Of course, and and about the safety situation, it depends. I mean that, but I think I think he's the leader 
of United States, and that, that, that's why he should come here to see. He's the leader of the United States. It's his decision, but I think he should come here to see. So backing it up to your previous position under President Trump, chief of staff at the National Security Council, if Trump were president right now, what kind of deliberations might be going on internally about whether or not Trump should set foot on Ukrainian soil? How would you ensure the president's safety if he wanted to do that? I'm just curious from an insider's perspective what that debate might look like under the previous administration. It's obviously a hypothetical. Yeah, it's a good question, Guy. You know, we had a lot of questions like this that arose uh, with different things President Trump did, whether going to the DMZ and in, in North Korea, whether it was uh, trips to, to places like India, where he insisted on, on talking to 100,000 folks in an open-air cricket stadium. You probably remember that visual. You know, so yep. President Trump, I think, if, if he'd been in this situation, his immediate reaction would have been, I want to be on the ground. I want to be meeting with Zelensky. Put me in where the action is. Of course, the challenge for the folks behind the scenes, obviously the Secret Service, the military, is the security dynamic. And so there's constantly this, this tug of war between the logistical challenges, the security challenges, and at least in our administration, a president who wanted to lead uh, publicly and lead from the front, so to speak. And, and in this case, it would literally be from the front. So, you know, we always tried to balance the importance of having a strong leader who was visible to the world, who showed American strength and vitality in public, out, out where everyone could see, while at the same time keeping them safe. And it's a, it's a tough balance to strike. Uh, what, what I think we have to be cognizant of is, you know, we have Prime Minister Johnson, who's already done this. We have other world leaders who are going to be doing this. And it does send a, a powerful signal to have the, the leader of the free world, ostensibly, uh, who really is, is, not, uh, is not part of the mix and part of this conversation. Do you think he should go, Biden? Look, we, we've pulled off incredibly difficult security situations before. We've had President Bush was in Iraq and Afghanistan numerous times. Pre President Obama, President Trump did several wartime visits uh, to places like Kabul and Baghdad. Uh, if we can make the security situation work and the men and women of the Secret Service and, and the military who support these efforts are the best in the world, if we can possibly make it work, I think it sends a signal of not just U.S. commitment, guide to resolving this in a way that is beneficial to NATO and to U.S. interests, but it also sends a signal to Xi Jinping in China that the president of the United States puts his, his money where his mouth is, and he stands on behalf of democracies around the world, and that's a signal that won't be lost as it relates to Taiwan. It sounds like you're saying it would be a real challenge, but doable. If he wanted to do it and he said, I'm the president and I want this to happen, it could be done. We have extreme... It's true. We have extraordinary logistical capabilities, whether it's the Air Force transport aircraft that, that take the armored, the motorcade is physically taken anywhere in the world by Air Force C-130s and, C and C-5s. You know, we have Secret Service pre-positioned in every location that, that he would be at. We have military units that are specialized in this sort of thing. All the capabilities are there, um, and it, it may be challenging. It certainly would be challenging, but it can be done if there's the political will to do it. I want to ask you about this. Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, was on CBS yesterday on Face the Nation, and he came kind of the closest that I've seen to a major political figure on either side of the aisle talking openly, unless I'm missing something. It's the first one I've seen talking 
uh, maybe not explicitly, but starting to maybe hint that President Biden's position and really a bipartisan consensus that America should support Ukraine, but not send any troops, any boots on the ground, uh, you know, don't actually get physically involved in the fighting, that perhaps that position, that stance needs to be reconsidered. Here's what Kuhn said yesterday, cut 10. Are you arguing that President Biden Margaret, was wrong when he said he would not send troops to Ukraine? Are you asking him to set a red line? This is a critical moment. If Vladimir Putin, who has shown us how brutal he can be, is allowed to just continue uh, to massacre civilians, to commit war crimes um, throughout Ukraine uh, without NATO, without the West uh, coming more forcefully to his aid, um, I, gra- I, I deeply worry that what's going to happen next is that we will see Ukraine turn into Syria. Mm -hmm. The American people cannot turn away from this tragedy in Ukraine. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely Mm -hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine and that Putin will only stop when we stop him. Putin will only stop when we stop him, meaning the United States or the West generally. Look, I'm very sympathetic to a number of the arguments that Coons makes there and what Putin's doing is an atrocity and outrageous. I'm not on board for U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine. Many Americans are not. I wonder what you think of that, Alex, and what you think the criteria ought to be for sending American troops anywhere, whether it's Ukraine or elsewhere, and does what's happening in Ukraine, in your mind, meet that standard? Well, it has to be an incredibly high bar for direct U.S. engagement, and I don't, unfortunately, as terrible as the conflict is, and I do believe that the conflict threatens U.S. interests uh, significantly in the sense that it shows and it, it sends a signal that territory can be taken by force, that we can rewrite the existing political boundaries by military force, which is one of the things that World War I, World War II was fought to show that is no longer acceptable. And so we have a huge interest, particularly in terms of signaling to Xi Jinping in China, that we aren't going to stand for uh, altering the map of the world by military means. So there, there is a huge U.S. interest there. But is it met by uh, sending U.S. troops or sending direct U.S. equipment? I think the answer is resoundingly no. And I think that the, the path here, Guy, is much more significant U.S. armaments and enabling NATO to send significant increases in armaments to the Ukrainians. This is something our administration was extremely involved in, whether it was the Javelin anti-tank missiles, whether it was uh, old, uh, not even old, but but uh, older warships that we had sent as surplus to the Ukrainian Navy. Um, you know, going down the list of potential uh, items that the Ukrainians could use to defend themselves, there's a lot still in the kit that the Biden administration has not pulled the trigger on. I would start there before I had any conversation about military force. Since you've mentioned China a few times in this interview, I want to flash back to the opening monologue of today's show. I was talking about what's happening in Shanghai and actually dozens of other Chinese cities right now. People are miserable. They are locked in their homes. They are being like deeply and aggressively oppressed. They are starving. 
apparently the censors over in China have a much easier job of getting American companies to do whatever they want as opposed to quashing what's happening right now. Just the social media networks are lighting up faster than the censors can even work. People are extremely, extremely disillusioned and angry about what's happening in China with these massive COVID lockdowns, uh, the lying, the you know forcible quarantine centers, separating families, killing animals. I mean, the list goes on. I wonder, is that internal problem something that might be maybe even more significant to the future of the Chinese Communist Party and their grip on power than what might be seen as some sort of a proxy fight in Ukraine at the moment? Well, I think China in its – the Chinese Communist Party's drive towards global dominance, which is what it is. We, we shouldn't sugarcoat it. It's not just regional dominance. It's not just fighting with the United States over trade. It is an attempt to maintain global dominance that's rooted in an authoritarian ideology. And we've all seen how that manifests itself over the course of the last two years because of COVID and, and what the internal nature of the regime means for our security and the security of our allies. Uh, internally, Look, they, they're going to continue, as long as the Communist Party of China rules in Beijing, they're going to continue to do horrible things to their own people. They, they have, for the entire existence of the Chinese Communist Party, the number one victim of that organization has been the people of China. And it will continue to be so as long as they rule. That being said, what we need to be focused on, I, I wouldn't compare it to Ukraine or you know, I wouldn't compare the internal Chinese uh, challenges with what our interests in Ukraine, I think they're in some ways linked because in, there's a rising authoritarianism that threatens the interests of the United States. And it's whether it's Vladimir Putin attempting to take Ukraine by force, whether it's Xi Jinping threatening to take Taiwan by force, whether it's the Ayatollahs in Iran threatening to upend the regional order with nuclear weapons, whether it's Kim Jong-un testing more ballistic missiles than he did uh, in the last couple of months than he did the entire presidency of Donald Trump. You look at all of those, and authoritarianism, illiberalism is on the march. And we have to, as a, as a country, we have to stand up and say, this is, this is not acceptable. This goes against our interests and our values. And that's where, unfortunately, we just haven't had the leadership guy over the last year and a half to stand up to those those you know four menaces. Yeah, I just I just feel like the people of China, perhaps more than they've ever felt before, on a mass scale, might understand how dangerous and damaging their government is to their own interests. Because you don't really see this type of unrest and disapproval articulated on this kind of scale in China very often, if ever. And it's so bad that people just can't avoid it. And as I said, the censors can't keep up with the anger, people just screaming out their windows and that people jumping out of their windows in despair. You can't just hide that behind censorship when it's widespread to this extent. That was basically my point. My guest here is Alex Gray. And over the course of this interview, I've been mostly interested in his previous role under President Trump and the Trump administration. He was chief of staff at the National Security Council. I did mention in the introduction that he's a candidate for U.S. Senate in Oklahoma. I'm not interested in getting involved in primaries here, Alex, and I know there's going to be a robust battle for that seat. I am curious, though, about just some of your thoughts and reflections on Senator Jim Inhofe, who's stepping away from the Senate. That's why there's this primary. Uh, he has been a conservative leader for many years, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on his legacy as you vie to replace him in the Senate. 
Well, it's, a, it's a important question because Senator Inhofe certainly left big shoes to fill. 28 years in Senate, uh, chairman and ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, not only was he a, a great champion for our veterans and for Oklahoma's part in the defense industrial base, we have a huge amount of, of Air Force and Army installations, Fort Sill and Tinker Air Force Base, but he was also a national leader on defense and foreign policy. Uh, and, and that legacy is something that I certainly hope to continue if I'm fortunate enough to succeed him in the Senate. And really his his leadership on everything from human rights and aid in Africa to U.S. support for NATO to a strong military uh, and rebuilding our military uh, really will live on. And that legacy will live on for many years to come. Alex Gray, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for some of your thoughts on foreign policy, and we'll be watching that race out in Oklahoma. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. That's Alex Gray. On The Guy Benson Show, we'll be right back getting into immigration. A few new details that you need to hear next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So if all goes according to plan, one week from right now, next Monday and Tuesday's shows will come to you live from the border. We've been invited by Governor Abbott's team down to Texas, along with my town hall colleagues. It'll be a town hall reporting trip with Katie Pavlich and Julio Rosas and myself. And since I'll be down there, I do the show down there. We talk a lot about the border crisis, aside from like a college bowl trip to El Paso. I have not spent really any time at the southern border, certainly not in Texas. Now, in years, certainly not, you know, covering this issue. That's going to change. We talk about it. We get great info from people who are down there, members of Congress, our colleague Bill Malugin and others. We're going to go see it for ourselves. As the numbers get worse and worse, and in fact, some of the new numbers I'm going to share with you in the next segment, they are eye-popping. So stay tuned for that. But Governor Abbott, who we've had on the show before, he's doing what he can with the federal government really refusing to do its job. Abbott is also, while trying to govern the state and get some sort of handle on this problem, he's also running for re-election. He's up this cycle, and his opponent is going to be Beto O'Rourke, Robert Francis O'Rourke, who goes by Beto, who ran for Senate and failed in 2018, ran for president and failed in 2020. I'm not even sure if he made it to 2020. He was, it was that cycle, though, and now he wants to be governor. And I'll just remind you, he takes a lot of different positions on stuff. So now that he's running for governor of Texas, he says this and cut 19. I'm not interested in taking anything from anyone. What I want to make sure that we do is defend the Second Amendment. That's him on guns now, now that he's back in Texas. But when he was running nationally as a left-wing Democrat for president, he said this and cut 20. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against a fellow Americans. Yeah, so we're not going to take it. No interest in taking anything away from anyone. Just protecting the Second Amendment. Then... Like a year ago, two years ago, hell yes, we're taking those guns away. Well, on Title 42 expulsions, he has been sort of all over the map. We should end it. 
Biden doesn't have a good plan to end it. And now on MSNBC, he had this to say, cut 17. You don't think it's a good idea for the Biden administration to end Title 42. Why? No, I, I think it's time to end Title 42. Okay. I don't think we should have ever implemented it. It's a very cynical reading of U.S. law. Should have never implemented Title 42 during the pandemic, which was used successfully to repel hundreds of thousands of people coming to the country illegally. One of the only tools that has been left in the toolbox, Beto O'Rourke, running for governor of Texas, believes that that tool should have never been used in the first place. That is a shocking position. He wants to be governor of that state. It is disqualifying, and that is a gift to the Abbott campaign. More on immigration after this. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I told you that I had more to say, more information to bring to you on the border, and we'll be heading to the border if you miss that early next week, doing a few shows down there, courtesy of Governor Abbott's team, and we're going to go see it with our own eyes. As the numbers get worse, I see actually on the news channel right now, Bill Malugin is on with Charles Payne, who's filling in for Neil Cavuto. He's down in Eagle Pass, Texas. We'll be going to Del Rio and to McAllen. That's the plan, at least for now. Malugin, over the weekend, I think this was actually on Friday, Friday evening, Good Friday, Malugin had the scoop that based on new court filings, the southern border encounters number in the month of March was 221,000. 303. 221,303. That is the highest number for a month since President Biden took office. Overall, when it comes to border apprehensions, that number is now 3.1 million under President Biden. 3.1 million under this president who hasn't even been president for two years. He's not even halfway through his term. And that number is 3.1 million. So last month, March, 221,303. Highest number on record under Biden. It's one of the highest numbers ever. Now, here's what's interesting about that. A few things. Of that 221,000, 109,549, so almost exactly half, almost exactly half of all of those people encountered at the border, illegal immigrants, were expelled under Title 42, which is this public health provision that we've talked about a lot, which allows particularly single males to be deported sent back, repatriated, what have you. It's an expulsion tool that the Trump people used during the COVID crisis and the Biden people continued it, except they've been under immense pressure, really from day one from their activists to get rid of it. And now they've announced that they're going to get rid of it. Title 42 is going away starting in late May, just about a month from now. So think about this. 
More than 220,000 illegal immigrants were encountered at the border in March alone. Half of them were sent back under Title 42. Title 42 is going to be jettisoned in a few weeks. You can just do the math here. When the word gets out that Title 42 expulsions are going away, that will incentivize illegal crossings even more. We've heard estimates from officials worrying that it could be up to 18,000 people per day during the peak season, which is upcoming. They're ending Title 42 right smack in the middle of the beginning of peak season, like May, June, July time. Number was already, you know, just exploded, mushroomed to the highest ever under a president who has had nothing but a border crisis. This border crisis started, in fact, before Biden took office. As soon as Trump lost, the word went out. There's an easier crew coming in here. They're not going to take border security as seriously. You're going to be able to go to the American border. You're going to be able to get into the United States. You're going to be able to stay. And in many, many cases, that has proved correct. So when the most frequently used method of actually turning people away goes away and is no longer an option, 220,000 is going to look like child's play by the time we're looking at May and June numbers in all likelihood. I mean, it, it seems almost inevitable, impossible to avoid, as even many Democrats are finally starting to realize. And incidentally, of those March numbers, 80,000 plus were released into the United States. 80, that's like an NFL stadium worth of people, a sold out NFL stadium just released into the United States where they are free to travel, says Jen Psaki at the White House. But half of those people were sent home under Title 42, which will no longer exist a little over one month from now. This is a crisis and a debacle that is about to become a complete disaster. Tom Homan, former ICE director, was here, acting director, on the show on Friday. And he said it scares him to death what's going to come next. He says based on his sources, top officials that he talks to on a regular basis, they believe the United States government has already effectively lost operational control over the southern border already. Before this Title 42 thing goes away, we played you last segment, the clip of Beto O'Rourke, who wants to be the Texas governor, saying Title 42 should have never been used at all. It's just an astounding position. One more note on the March numbers. Malugin reported this as well over the weekend. There were at least 23 known or suspected terrorists apprehended at the southern border last year in 2021. That according to Border Patrol records. These are people who were flagged on the terrorist screening database between Biden's inauguration and just after Christmas of 2021. So you got two dozen known or suspected listed terrorists who were encountered and apprehended at the border last year alone. And you might say, well, Guy, you know, you're talking about these millions of encounters, 3.1 million. Only 23 of them were uh, apparently terrorists. That's a very small percentage. I mean, what percentage is acceptable is my first question. 
If terrorists recognize that coming in through the southern border is a viable strategy of sneaking into the country, that's something that some of them will try to do. These are people who mean us harm. And the 23 are ones that were actually caught. We know that there were tens of thousands of gotaways in March alone. There have been hundreds of thousands of gotaways under President Biden. And the people with the strongest incentive to get away and not get caught are dangerous people. This is a national security issue in addition to a sovereignty issue. It's The Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in on this Monday. So I saw this headline over the weekend, and I could scarcely believe it. I would believe it more if it were in New York or California or Philadelphia or Seattle. This was in South Carolina. So I'm not really sure what's going on here, but it does align with a narrative, a storyline that has become increasingly prevalent, I think, and dangerous in the United States, which is prosecutors, judges deciding not really to prosecute pretty serious crimes or offering bail to people who probably shouldn't be on the loose at all. Dangerous, violent people, people who have committed serious crimes. It's like they get arrested, they get processed, and then they are just put back on the street in a matter of hours in some cases. So in this case, there was a South Carolina mall shooting last week, and it was a melee that left 14 people wounded, I believe nine of whom were shot, like gunshot wound victims. And in this case involving a man who was charged... A judge has set a $25,000 bond for that suspect, and he'll remain on house arrest, but will be permitted to travel to and from work while wearing the ankle monitor if he's able to scrap together the twenty-five grand. And again, we don't know every single detail of what happened here, but if there was a shooting at a mall with nine people shot and five other people otherwise hurt, simply charging one of the suspects with unlawful carrying of a pistol. Now, they say they might charge him with more. They're reviewing more evidence. But this is a central suspect in the shooting. $25,000 bond seems insanely low, like ludicrous. It seems like if you're involved in some sort of a mass shooting incident, that should be more than enough to keep you behind bars. Obviously, you're innocent until proven guilty. There's a whole process. I just don't know why you would err on the side of letting this person out, setting such a low bail, and then letting that person continue on, you know, going to work and that sort of thing until, what, the trial arrives? And this individual was previously arrested back in 2018, charged as an accessory before the fact in a shooting death in South Carolina. So this person was at least connected to or involved in a shooting death just a few years ago of a high school student, a 17-year-old. 
Now this person is a suspect in a mass shooting at a mall, and he's out on $25,000 bond and an ankle monitor, and he can, like, go about his daily business, at least at his employer. The sheriff in Richland County said this, we catch people, they serve a little bit of time, then they get out and get right back to doing what they normally do, and that's commit crimes. The criminal justice system needs to do better. Now, the attorney for this person, who, by the way, is a Democratic state representative, claims that his client acted in self-defense and that he was cooperating with the police, which might be the case. But I think if you're involved and you're like in a, a big shootout or something, to be released the way he has been is at the very least questionable. The 14 victims of this fracas range in age from 15, so high school students, to 73 senior citizens. At least nine of them suffered gunshot wounds. Others were injured while trying to flee the chaos. So I guess the claim is that this particular person, who again was allegedly involved in a previous killing, didn't provoke this shootout and then turned himself in and is cooperating, I'm not sure that's a good enough reason to permit that person not to be behind bars, but that is, I guess, the decision that's been made in this case right now. Now, one of the reactions that I saw on social media, which is a cesspool, is that, oh, well, this suspect in this shooting involving multiple victims survived, first of all, was taken into custody and has been let back out with a relatively lenient agreement, at least so far. And therefore, the speculation among some leftists was this person must be white because black suspects, the way that this theory goes, the way that the narrative goes, is black suspects get killed by the police, whereas white suspects get led away in handcuffs. As it turns out, this suspect happens to be black. He was not killed by police, and he got what many people are calling a lenient bail agreement with lenient terms. So maybe we just shouldn't view every single thing through the prism of race immediately and just leap to conclusions. By the way, if that storyline were true, the Brooklyn shooter who shot 10 people On a subway last week, he would be dead right now. That's a black man, not taken into custody with relative ease, without incident, as is what happened. I mean, that's what occurred in that case. So I think maybe we should just judge each case and each suspect on the merits and not just assume things based on skin color. I know that that's something that people enjoy doing, I guess for their own political reasons. By the way, speaking of that Brooklyn shooting, one other thought related to this. Drew Holden, who's a conservative writer, he often does these long threads on Twitter with the receipts going back with screenshots of people's tweets about various controversies just to show and illustrate, in many cases, the absolute bias of the media. These are invaluable threads that he does. And this wasn't a whole thread that he 
posted over the weekend. But he did note that at this stage in the Kyle Rittenhouse story in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the New York Times had published a lengthy piece about Rittenhouse's social media and the right-wing causes that he supported and his support for Donald Trump. The New York Times did a deep dive on that, on the teenager in Wisconsin who was acquitted, by the way, of murder. I think that was the right decision, given the facts at hand. But he was viewed as sort of this white supremacist right-winger. That's how he was portrayed a lot of the time in the press. And the New York Times really wanted to make sure that its readers understood the politics of that shooter, who unequivocally acted in self-defense based on the evidence. The Brooklyn shooter, and again, the South Carolina story that we talked about, they're still trying to sort that out. The Brooklyn assailant, that's much more straightforward. That was a deliberate attack, a premeditated, planned, attempted mass murder with the smoke bombs and the gas mask and all the rounds of ammunition that he had. He was trying to kill as many people as he could. Thank God he killed none, but he did shoot 10. And Drew Holden notes that as opposed to the Rittenhouse situation, the New York Times hasn't really done a similar deep dive into the insane online rantings of that shooter, who was one of these crazy left wingers, it appears. They just kind of broadly described it as him being, quote, overtly concerned with race. Well, that's true. And he railed against white people and Asian people and Jewish people and was definitely obsessed with race. Some of what I've read suggests that he was very much into black nationalism and and that kind of poison. But we got a long like dissertation in The New York Times about Kyle Rittenhouse and his politics based on his social media footprint, not nearly as intense on this person for some reason. And by the way, this individual shot a bunch of people in New York, which is last time I checked home to the New York Times. As opposed to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where they really had to do some digging and maybe deploy someone out there and you know cover something that's not exactly in their backyard, Wisconsin, unlike Brooklyn. And if you are just a little bit of a cynic, not even that much of a cynic, you might have a few thoughts in your head about why the New York Times would be very interested in the ideological makeup of someone like Kyle Rittenhouse, but not so much the guy who shot up the subway car in their own city. I don't think it's terribly subtle. All right, The Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour coming up next. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour. On this Monday here on The Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C., our Tony Snow Studios. 
at the D.C. Bureau in our nation's capital for Fox News. I'll be joining our whole team up in New York for the rest of the week. So big Apple editions of the Guy Benson show coming your way because we have a lot of TV duties on the way as well. Gutfeld tomorrow night, filling in for Kennedy Wednesday, Thursday and more. So we will get you all of those details when I'm up in New York starting tomorrow. But doing the show from the home base here today, GuyBensonShow.com is our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com. The website has all sorts of options for you there, including how to listen live, various avenues, also major interviews. We will post those there. Sometimes my TV segments will put the video up. And then, of course, the free podcast, on demand, free of charge, Every day, GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is expanding big time. They are about to announce even more states. I'm very excited about some of these developments that I can't quite share with you yet. But if it hasn't arrived where you live yet, it's likely coming soon. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. As we begin our final hour here, with a reminder, by the way, I'm on special report tonight on the panel from D.C. with Brett Bayer and company. I think Britt Hume's on the panel tonight. That'll be fun. So see you there around 640 Eastern Fox News Channel. That's on the TV side. Here on the radio, we are very happy to welcome back Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, former chief of staff of the National Security Council during the Trump administration and author of the book War by Other Means. General, good to have you back on the show. Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me back on. You bet. I want to start with this involving Ukraine. There was an attack earlier on Lviv in the mm-hmm. western part of the country, some strikes by the Russians, including one that apparently hit a tire repair shop and killed seven people. Uh, those are civilians. Obviously, this is not military target. Not surprising. The Russians have just been bombing hospitals. I mean, anything. They'll bomb everything. And the reason why I think this is getting a lot of attention in the West today is because Lviv is where, first of all, a lot of journalists are based. It's seen as relatively safe and pretty far away from the front in the east, where the Russians say that's really where this next big confrontation is going to be. What do you think is going on here? Are they just trying to still send sort of a message and create this sense of concern among Ukrainian people everywhere saying you are not safe anywhere in your country? You know, Guy, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag on this. Look, the, the first thing he's doing is the Russians are trying to force Zelensky to make some type of move in, in a political arena by killing civilians. And I think they're making a huge mistake on that. All they're doing is creating, uh, you know, 100 years of absolute hatred of the Russians by doing what they're doing. I mean, it's a deliberate act to target civilians, and that's what he's doing. I think it's uh, it's really horrendous that they do that. But that's the Russian way of doing business. Look, they just um, virtually destroyed in the entire city of Mariupol. I mean, just absolutely crushed it, uh, which which makes no sense. But that's the Russian way of war and figuring if we can kill enough of these civilians and kill these Ukrainians, Zelensky will have to come to the table, and he won't. I think it's a bad move. The second thing, though, about it is, and this is the reason I've been saying this for, for weeks on end, we've got to give them the ability to put some type of air defense above those cities. And I keep saying, go get the S-300s 
from Slovakia or Greece or Bulgaria or give them some other means of air defense that they can put an air, de- umbrella, air defense umbrella, an iron dome above these major cities. And I, I, it, I, for the lack of me, I don't know why they haven't done that yet. And they do. They need to do that to protect the cities so they can fight uh, more efficiently on the ground. They don't have to worry about the cities being continually hammered and bombed. You know, the Israelis have done a great job on it with their Iron Dome system, but they need to do that. So that's, it, that's just, it's a dual answer, but this is typical Russia, this is typical Putin, that they killed a lot of civilians and they don't really care. General, what are you making of this fight that is brewing and has been now anticipated for quite some time in the eastern region of the country, in the Donbass and maybe beyond? It seems like a lot of people have been bracing for this, expecting this. The Russians sort of regrouped and redeployed and everyone keeps looking to that part of the country for this you know, huge battle. But it hasn't really happened yet. Is there an explanation militarily in your mind about maybe a strategic pause here? They're, they're waiting for something. What's going on? Now, I, I think they're waiting because they're building up forces. Uh, and it, it may truly be the culminating fight for Ukraine. He's just trying to load up. You know, he's got that new commander there, Dvornikov, which is the first full-time commander they've had to coordinate everything. And I think he's trying to set the battle that he can launch it uh, against Ukrainian forces there and try to make it consolidate that region of Ukraine. This is going to be an interesting fight because it, unlike the fight around Kiev, that this is going to be more of an attrition fight. It's going to be go back to traditional ways of war fighting, and they've got to fight this one smart. It's, uh, when I mean more attrition-based, it's going to be a lot more artillery, a lot more tanks out there, a lot more people trying to kill the other side. And, and, and Zelensky's team is going to have to be very, very cautious in how they approach this fight. We can help this fight out, we in the West, and we can help them by ensuring they've got enough firepower. And what I mean by firepower, these are the 155-millimeter howitzers, the uh, multiple rocket launch systems, MRLS, things like that that can counter the Russian heavy strike that is bound to come. And and they're going to try to use the preponderance of forces, outnumber them. You know, sometimes in warfare, mass counts. But at the other time, you know, the morale of the forces count. And Ukraine's been fighting very well. He doesn't have his best units because his best units have been pretty well marginalized after the first 50 days of the fight. But the big fight's going to occur there. I think the, the Russians are going to try to use their to their advantage mass, meaning a lot of troops and a lot of artillery and a lot of armor, and try to make a go of it and just cut that part of the region off. It'll be interesting to see how the Ukrainians, you know, counter that. But again, I don't know I'm repeating myself. That's the reason why Zelensky's been virtually screaming, I need this heavy artillery and I need these heavier systems out there. And he's absolutely correct. We've been very, very slow on the uptake. We finally got it to him. But this is something we should have been doing three or four weeks ago because I think he knew intuitively, as did his generals, that this fight in the east was going to be the critical fight. And if he can hold on there and then do some type of counterattacks in the south, uh, he can actually defeat the Russian army. And if he defeats the Russian army, it changes the balance of power uh, for decades in Europe. This delay that the Russians are using to their advantage, trying to mass the troops and plan this thing better certainly than the failed Kiev advance was, that could also benefit the other side though, right? Because it seems like the West has very good – intelligence penetration into what the Russians are doing, what they're saying to each other, their communications. And so, you know, yes, time might be helping the Russians here kind of reset a little bit, 
but that's also buying time for the for the other side, for the Ukrainians, and could allow them maybe to prepare the groundwork and, and get ready for whatever is coming on their side too, right? So it's not necessarily just intrinsically helpful to the Russians. It could benefit the Ukrainians too, this, this delay, if you want to call it that. Yeah, Guy, I hope you made a comment there, and I hope that is true. I, sh- I believe there's a lot of truth to it, and that is making sure they've got great intelligence. We have exquisite ability to gather information on the battlefield, and I'm hoping that they are funneling that information to the Ukrainians to allow them to fight much better and more, with more agility, because our intelligence is being able, we're able to pick up things from communications intelligence, signals intelligence, human intelligence as well. That can set set allow Zelensky to fight and his team to fight in, in a much more effective manner. Something we're much better at than the Russians. The Russians' problem is they just do not do, which is surprising because we thought I think the West thought they would. They just don't do a good job on combined arms and in coordination and getting everything fighting together. They seem to do it in peace parts. I said earlier that it's almost like a strategy of what I call IFR. I follow roads, and if they follow roads, they're just going to get picked off. They, they've got to figure it to, to coordinate their artillery, their air, and their infantry and ground forces, and they haven't been able to do that. And if they can't do that now, I think the Ukrainians will really give them a, a real go for it because there's a, there's a correlation of forces. For the Russians to be successful if they want to attack them, they're going to have to have at least a, a correlation of three to one as a minimum. That means they need to have three soldiers for every one of the Ukrainian soldiers out there because the defense always has the advantage on an attack like this. And, and, it, and if they fight like I hope they fight, and they have the capability to fight they, the Ukrainians, they'll set up something what we used to call an active or a mobile defense, allow the Russians to come in and then use all the capability they have to finish them off. And that's the reason why if they had that heavy artillery, uh, they could do that. And especially if they had, just like you mentioned a minute ago, with all that intelligence, because we read the battlefield well. Uh, we've always been very good at that, we in the United States. And uh, we've always been to keep our commanders informed. And if you're informed like that with correct intelligence, uh, it really gives you a great advantage because you're able to be uh, much more aggressive uh, with greater agility and insight on how to fight. So I'm, I've got fingers crossed, toes crossed, eyes crossed that you know they're getting the intelligence that they need. I, I think they are, uh, and I just hope it continues. General, I want to get your reaction to three things. Number one, there are reports over the weekend that an eighth Russian general has been killed in action, eight over the course of this conflict, about two months, which is an extraordinary number. Then, of course, the sinking of that critical vessel in the Black Sea. That was last week. It seems like the Russians have finally sort of given up the lie that it was just an accident and a fire. It seems like the Ukrainians did successfully sink that vessel. And then third, there are reports of refuseniks within the Russian ranks, people who are being told to deploy and who are just refusing to deploy or to go back into battle, people who have already been in battle you know, at least once during this war. There's at least enough of a critical mass of these people refusing to fight that there are some documents suggesting that the Russians have a stamp now, that they're stamping like a shame on their documents saying, oh, this person is a traitor or whatever. If they're making stamps – to this effect, that would suggest that the reports are correct, that there's at least you know some large percentage of people who are just refusing to go along with this. So those seem to me to be relatively significant developments here. Another general killed, uh, the sinking of that ship, and then some number 
unconfirmed of Russian military wanting nothing to do with this fight moving forward. Just quickly, General, your thoughts on those three. Yeah, briefly, and, and losing eight generals is significant. I mean, that means their generals are fighting forward because they, they have a, lag, a poor uh, system of command and control. Look, we lost one general in Afghanistan in 20 years. We lost five in Vietnam. But they've lost eight within the, the first 50 days, and they're all fighting generals on frontline generals simply because of the command and control issue. They're fighting so far forward. They're getting killed, and they're good. They're frontline generals, I meaning they're good ones. It's, and, it, and it'll affect them operationally. Second, on the, the, the Moscow, that was a home grown missile that they use, two of them, Neptune missiles, has a range of 160 miles. Each one of those things pack a 350-pound warhead. In, in relation, a Javelin and a tank missile carries a warhead of about 20 pounds. So you can imagine 350 pounds times two. Uh, that ship was gone as soon as they both hit. Secondary explosions, things gone. A uh, real shock to them because that was their flagship in the Black Sea Fleet, and it sent a real a real signal that they can fight for as necessary from the, from the shoreline because you can fire those missiles inland from at least 16 miles in the truck mounted. That's number the second one. And the third one is that just shows you they've got a real problem with morale. If that's coming out right now, mm-hmm. that means they since their front-line units were hit pretty hard, like their airborne air assault Spetsnaz units, some select tank units, this means they've got some problems, especially with their conscripts. They're, they're, that army guy is not that big. It's only about a 200,000-man army. It's not like the, the army that we remember from the 50s and 60s and 70s. So it's a much smaller army, and they've lost a lot of troops. And after you fight for 50 days, you get tired. I don't care what army you're in. And and they've fought for over 50 days, and, they, and they've had to go to the that a lot of the conscripts and a lot of conscripts are saying no, we don't want to do this, and it just shows a lack of morale. So they're gonna, they're they're basically using up their entire army. The Ukrainians are fighting this way, and, and they're about to defeat the Russian army if they keep going this way. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg retired as a Fox News contributor. His book is War by Other Means. He served in the Trump administration. Sir, thank you as always. We appreciate it. Thanks, guy. Thanks for having me. We'll take a break. We will come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Please stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free on demand. So there are headlines today, and I think you're all waiting for this news, that Vice President Kamala Harris has now officially shared her strategy when it comes to playing Wordle, right? The online game, five letters, and you have your various number of guesses, five or six guesses, I think. We talked about it a couple weeks ago on the home stretch. It's all the rage among certain people. Folks play it every day. And the vice president would like us to know she is one of those people. And she is letting us hear about her strategy, which is that, Quote, I think you need to have a healthy mix of consonants and vowels. Isn't that groundbreaking? Thank thank you, Madam Vice President. You're saying, let me write this down. You're saying consonants and vowels to guess a word? Thank you, Madam Vice President. But she has managed, according to her, trust but verify, but according to her, this approach has led to a 48-game winning streak. So I guess uh, she does carve out a little bit of time to do this on a regular basis. 48 in a row, it's not bad. The 57-year-old vice president first revealed her Wordle routine last week during a fundraiser. When I can't sleep, I've been doing Wordle, she told donors. 
but she said her travel schedule often doesn't allow for Wordle downtime. It's not like I'm going to the beach when I travel. It's 13, 14-hour days, and you know, little sleep. So, yeah, Wordle gets put aside. She said, on average, it takes her four out of six tries to correctly guess the daily answer. Asked if she's ever lucked out and guessed correctly on her first attempt, Harris replied, no, but I've had six on the second word. So she's keeping tabs on this. You might say she's keeping closer tabs on this than the border crisis, which is actually one of her jobs. Biden didn't really want to handle it. So he's like, you know what, give it to the VP. Has been going very badly. They're making policies even worse, as we discussed earlier. But she's got her wordle strategy and her score breakdown seemingly memorized. So, I mean, I guess good for her. She's just like us. She plays Wordle, but she said the one sadness that she has about the game is because of her position in government, her phone won't let her just text anyone. So the Wordle scores that people are constantly posting, she can't text or anything like that. So I guess she has to just like live with the satisfaction and then share it with donors at fundraisers. Then it gets picked up as a news item because it is actually by her standards, more relatable than most things that she does. So I guess I'll give her that. By the way, I mentioned that she has not yet guessed correctly on the very first try, the five-letter word. It's probably because she begins every day with the same guess. Laugh. (laughs) 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 The happy hour continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free on demand every day. Earlier in the program, back in our first hour, our friend Kennedy stopped by the program. She's the host of Kennedy, FBN, weeknights, actually Monday through Thursday, at 7 p.m. Eastern. I'll be filling in for her on FBN Wednesday and Thursday, but she's still in town So she dropped by the show, and we did a full-blown Woke Tales conversation with her. Here's part of it. It was a lot of fun. We're going to start with this one. A women's prison in New Jersey is the source of a lot of controversy in the last few days because now I believe two separate female inmates have been impregnated by a transgender female-identifying inmate. So there was a lawsuit in New Jersey. There's one major women's prison in the state. There was a woman or an individual who identified as a woman who won a lawsuit against the state being forced to serve time in a men's prison. So now the state allows inmates to pick which gender they identify as. You have uh, several dozen transgender women in the women's prison, and one of them apparently clearly has not gone through uh, the the full transitioning process because this person is impregnating the ladies at the lady prison. And I just wonder what you make of this. A uh, baby. <laughs> I mean, yes. But is it fair to the baby now? Because you're going to have two incarcerated parents Mommy? where you yeah, really yeah, shouldn't you have. Know, that I, I'm fine, aren't I? <laughs> is that, you're, you're, the, uh, you're the offspring of, of this. 
This is how you came into being? Yep, and that's how they got little me. Um, yeah, that's, that's what happens. I'm not a biologist guy, uh, but I know when um, biologically male gametes and biologically female gametes intersect, uh, they, they make a baby. So that's, that's what happens. And yes, you and we can, have. You can have all the the rhetorical designations you want, but it's actually it's it's pretty simple. And this is actually following the science. There's a few buns in the oven now in this prison, and I'm just wondering, you know, might there that, that, need to that's be? That's what happens. So I don't know. Uh, none of this is a surprise, and you know, it's like, I is it fair to each other? A lot of things that aren't fair to kids, and no matter what happens with. Uh, the child, they'll still find ways to blame their parents for something. I think that is true, and I wish the children fulfilling happy, long lives when they're born. I'm just wondering, might there need to be the future. some rules, some some rules here, like if you have certain parts that are still actively working parts that maybe you should not be able to sleep with ladies at the lady prison? I don't know. I, I don't really, I mean, it's a little complicated here. Uh, that that seems yeah, like something that someone may have thought of. It's not complicated you know. at all. It's 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 pretty simple. Uh, <laughs> like, a goes into B and then C. Right. It's like back to whenever. When did you start learning this stuff? Like late elementary school, maybe fifth grade. The yeah, very basics. I, I think. I have I have two older brothers, and uh, yeah, I blame them for a lot, including you know, it's like <laughs> robbing me of the joy of of feminine Innocence. childhood. Right, and without knowing stuff too young, but so so you knew you knew all these details uh, apparently at a very tender no, age. No, I, I, I had I had all the details wrong. Like that's what happens is you get a bunch <laughs> of misinformation, and then you're like, yeah, I know what a condom is. It's a hat, and it's like, well, I mean, maybe, but not really. Yeah, I remember a friend told me in like fourth grade. That he knew because his dad told him that a condom was like briefs, like tidy whities That was a condom. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Like, wow. Well, I mean, in a way it is. So it, it take really that is to virtual, the bank. It is, uh, <laughs> it's not attractive. So. Next story here, and this comes to us from not New Jersey but Arizona. There were some woke diversity activists who decided – because they go around apparently looking for things to be offended by – And so they determined that there was a DJ that had been hired for an event for some, like, parent-teacher organization or something to DJ an event, and they accused this DJ of wearing blackface. And so they went on the warpath, and they were very angry about the blackface incident. My full interview with our friend, Kennedy, available on that free podcast, the entire show on demand, no charge to you, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a couple stories to bring to your attention, including an interesting real estate listing. Would you bite on a pretty good deal if it came with a caveat? We'll get into that when we return on The Guy Benson Show. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. Catch me on special report coming up in the next hour. Fox News Channel, Brett Bayer and team 
Looking forward to that. Then heading up to New York for the rest of the week, we'll be doing the show from there. One big happy family. The entire Guy Benson Show team in one place for the first time ever since Dan joined the team. So we'll have much more to talk about on that front coming up in the coming days. But first, here as we welcome you back, GuyBensonShow.com, all of that, I want to discuss two different stories that were sent to me by listeners. And I really enjoy the fact that our listeners seem to get it. You all get what we do here in the home stretch. So the first one was sent. This was picked up by FoxNews.com, but it was also in local media as well. A kindergartner in Michigan brought in Jose Cuervo margaritas to snack time, which made fellow students woozy. So someone sent this along to me and wondered if this might have producer Christine's fingertips all over this. I said, well, no, because I'm pretty sure Megan's in second grade and she lives in New Jersey, not Michigan, and it's not vodka or vodka, as Christine would say. If the details were just slightly different, I would be quite concerned, actually, that this was some sort of reckless endangerment situation involving Christine. But apparently this bad parenting was someone else's fault. And my question that I have about this story more than, I mean, maybe some of the more obvious questions is, was there no teacher there to prevent the distribution of margaritas to the students during snack time? Did the teacher, I guess, not pick up on this? They just weren't aware that there was something like a little, I don't know, a little nip in the cooler or whatever this student brought? So these are five-year-olds who had their first margs, unwitting five-year-olds. Obviously, if I were a parent, I'd be very unhappy that this happened. And I'm just curious if producer Christine might have an alternative take on this and might want to defend whoever's responsible for this. Christine? Well, I mean, it's not necessarily. Yeah, sure. I'll give it a go. Um, If I have, you know, margaritas in a can in my fridge and my child sneaks one out because she doesn't know or he doesn't know what it is and puts it in his backpack, am I to blame? Is that my fault? I think it would be your fault if you sent the margs in with the student to be shared. Okay. So, yes, obviously, I don't think this is exactly what happened here. But I am a little confused how— You would send her with Cosmos, wouldn't you? (laughs) Like, oh, it's so pretty. It's pink. What is this? I did tell you the time where Megan asked me to play restaurant. She went upstairs, came back down, all dressed with her bag, and she said— Mommy, I called the Uber, ready to go get your pink drink. <laughs> that's how she thought we played yeah, restaurant. Kids are perceptive. Yeah, that's 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 restaurant, that's you know, Monday night, that's a lot of different things, I believe. <laughs> yeah, this came in, in the in a backpack, by the way, in Livonia, Michigan, the Grand River Academy. And I guess the student just sort of was handing the drink around. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. What is the and, teacher doing? I mean, the the kid was pouring it out in, in Dixie cups. Yep. So four or five sips <laughs> that she was given out, and then the the kid started to feel woozy and a little dizzy, and then I guess the teacher finally suspected something was up and tried it, and that was the end of that. So 
So are you saying if the kid wasn't such a lightweight, this wouldn't be a problem? <laughs> I mean, you should be a lightweight when you're five. You should be the definition of a lightweight in every literal sense, actually. No, I, I just love what the statement from the school, what it said. It said, it's impossible to keep an eye on everything our students bring into school. I yeah, we do our best. I can understand that, but this, we're talking kindergarten. Like, eyes and ears should be on these kids at all times. So I'm just going to put it out there. I'm against giving kindergartners margaritas. Okay, that's it took you a while to get around to that, but I'm glad that you landed there because that is correct. That is the correct position to have. Meanwhile, I want to ask you about this, a totally separate story from Northern Virginia. And a friend of mine who listens to the show sent this to me. Here's the headline. This $800,000 house in Fairfax will go quickly. It comes with a person in the basement. So there is a house listed in the suburbs of D.C., and I ask you about this, Christine, because you just went through this whole process of selling your house and moving to an apartment building. So here's the the deal that you perhaps had an opportunity to cash in on if you were looking for a house in this area. It's a sought-after area. It's a five-bedroom home, and it's near a Trader Joe's, near a Home Depot, and a tempting price tag, especially for someone with a healthy budget, For a renovation, it's listed for $800,000 in an area where a lot of sales top the $1 million mark. The owners who put this on the market said they only want cash offers and the home, which does need some work, is sold as is. This is according to the Washingtonian. That's not uncommon. It's still a red-hot market here in D.C., saying, look, you get the house as is. There's no contingencies. We want a cash offer only. But there's a catch, kind of a quirk, and it's listed literally online per the listing. The home will convey, I'm quoting now, with a person living in the lower level with no lease in place. And you can't see the lower level, according to the listing. So you buy the house. The basement is sight unseen. And you're buying that sight unseen basement And it comes with someone who's living there. And apparently what happened in this case is a woman, quote, weaseled her way into this house, has been living there for three years. So this is a squatter. Let's be clear. There might be someone else living with her. They don't know, apparently. And the tenants, for lack of a better word, this is the Washingtonian story, say that there's no lease in place and this person is not paying rent. The current owners are just, quote, not the type that can financially afford or emotionally deal with the eviction, according to the listing agent. Okay, so other real estate experts in the area are saying this is a really good neighborhood. This is a good house. Yes, you'll have to plow a lot of money into it in terms of renovations. But still, given the asking price, you can then set aside a lot of money and do a big renovation. And if you are willing to go through the process of eviction, which will cost you some money. Overall, this is a good deal. And they have at least one full offer, apparently. This was as of a few days ago. Would you want any part of this, Christine? Because on one hand, good deal, a real value. On the other hand, there's a very weird situation that you're going to have to deal with. And there's a lot of question marks floating around that situation. 
Where do you come down on this? Oh, this would be a hard, hard no for me. I would not even entertain trying to buy this home because do you know what the process you would have to go through to get that person out of your home? And you can't even look and see what that person has done to your basement or what they would do knowing that you're trying to evict them to your house. So no, no, no. I think you could probably get rid of the person if you needed to, but it would take quite a lot of effort. And you'd need lawyers, and there would be fees, and there would be probably maybe police involved at some point. It would be a huge pain. But if you're saving, let's say, two or $300,000 as a result, and yeah, you'll have to do renovations and that sort of thing, is there a scenario under which the headache would be worth it dollars and cents wise, especially if you're sort of like, hey, I'm the owner of this place now. The old owners didn't have it in them to kick you out, but I'm not them and this is happening. Like there would be all sorts of, I would guess, like negotiations, ultimatums, threats made before you got the expensive process underway. But it could still in a hot real estate market be attractive to some people. No, you're, you're not, not for, fine. No, not for me. I, 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 do you know how hard it is? I've we've seen the stories about squatters. It is very, very difficult to get somebody out of your home, off of your property, um, just because you want them off. It doesn't. It, I don't think it works that way. I've seen many, many stories about this. I, I'm not sure if you know this about me, guy, but I have a little bit of anxiety. I don't know if I, ever, you know, I have. I, up I don't on that. really show it. I think you know. I really. <laughs> yeah. No. I hide it very well, uh, especially during work. Wyatt, I don't appreciate the laughter over there. Um, but no, this is not worth making my anxiety double or triple. No way. Now, Bobby is frugal in some ways. Would he be more into this potentially? No, Bobby doesn't have the. He doesn't have the. He barely has patience for me. No, he doesn't have patience for this. Okay, no All right. way. That's, that's sort of my my instinct was run away, sprint away from this. But I guess some folks, a competitive market, they want the house, they want the neighborhood, they're going to do what it takes. So I want the follow up story to this. I want to know what happens. Does the squatter get booted? I'm actually very curious. Actually, if maybe Wyatt can make a Google alert on his phone or on his computer for this story. I would like a follow-up. We could do a factor follow-up here in the program to see how this gets resolved. Because now I want to know. I'm sort of invested. Not literally. I'm not going to invest in this for all the reasons that you just said. But I'm emotionally invested to see what happens. And who on earth is this woman? And maybe someone else that she's shacked up with, rent-free for three years in a basement. This could be a movie. This could be a Netflix series, potentially. They could make Inventing Anna into a show. This could be, you know, basement drama or something. The woman in the basement. Yeah, we can we can follow this here on The Guy Benson Show. Not quite as closely as some of our other stories, but uh, I'm just, I'm curious. All right, that's your assignment, Wyatt. Keep an eye on this story for us, please. You can, like, maybe even get Zillow alerts on your phone about this address. Well, that's all we have for today because we're out of time. I'm going to do special report coming up in the next hour on Fox News Channel and then off to the train up to New York Tuesday through Friday up in the Big Apple. And then a week from today, 
and also a week from tomorrow, if all goes according to plan, we'll be doing the show from the border down in Del Rio and McAllen, Texas. That is going to be fascinating. Much more to come on that later in the week. So a lot of travel upcoming, a lot of excitement here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening, and we are back here tomorrow. Same time, same place, but from New York. It's The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening, and have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.